0: Good physics day everyone in this episode i'm excited to share my first conversation with a former student kate ruby is a self-proclaimed physics doubter turned physics enthusiast she stepped into my intro physics classroom at the university of new england as a sophomore environmental science major and three years later she had completed all of the courses to earn her minor in biophysics she even did some physics education research with my colleague jamie visenka and published a few papers Her newly found love of physics led her to the University of Maine to study glacier dynamics and dig deeper into some applied physics. She sails boats, plays with flubber, and hosts a fun and informative podcast. I think you'll enjoy our lively conversation. Welcome to Physics Alive. I'm Brad Moser, and I want to help fellow educators spark new life into the physics classroom. Each episode, I'll draw inspiration from the teachers, researchers, authors, and professionals who explore innovative learning, motivate new curricula, and encourage an inclusive and healthy classroom environment. Kate Ruby graduated from the University of New England in 2016 with a BS in environmental science and from the University of Maine in 2019 with a master's in earth and climate science. She is currently chief mate for the company Deep Sea Wilderness, where she is part of a team of experienced scientists and sailors, providing students with live-aboard marine science, sailing, and environmental education experiences on the Salish Sea off the coast of Washington State. This year, she also started a podcast called Go Forth in Science, where she and her guests tell tales of science and adventure in the world around us. In this episode, we talk about the learning experiences that made her education great, the super cool physics of flowing glaciers, why we and our students should even learn a bit about glaciers, and we get the inside scoop on our podcast. Thank you, Kate, so much for coming on to Physics Alive. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) One of my big passions in education is providing content, skills, and experiences that are relevant for my students' personal and career interests. Um, I'm hoping to learn how to do this better. And talking to my current and former students is a great way to do this. So... Uh, I'd like to start our conversation by having our listeners get to know you a little bit. Details such as where you went to school, what degrees you earned, that that's going to be great. But more importantly, I'd like you to share how your career aspirations have shifted and evolved over time.
1: Yeah, uh, well, they definitely have shifted. Uh, <laughs> uh, in high school, I actually very much disliked physics. And now look <gasps> at me, I'm on a physics podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm a convert, that's for sure. Um, So, yeah, so I went, like, from being, like, staunchly in the biological sciences camp in high school, uh, and then I got to UNE and proceeded to take all of your physics classes, and then I was like, oh, wow, okay, physics is really cool. (laughs) Um, I really started thinking about how much the biological sciences and like the environment and climate change all have to do with the physics of our planet uh with you know tides and wind patterns and Coriolis effect and there's so much that our planet relies on and is the way it is today because of these physical phenomenons and so I realized that and I was like oh wow, okay physics is actually super cool <laughs> um and then so i was hooked and now pretty much only focus in those physical sciences when i can get it Um, i went to grad school at Umaine and studied glaciers there for two years and and that glaciers are very much a environmental phenomenon that just is physics tied up in a pretty ice-covered bow uh (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, that was definitely a a case where I kind of didn't really know what I was getting into when I first started studying glaciers. And then, like, maybe three days in, I was like, oh, wow, I'm really glad I did all those physics in college. (laughs) And definitely a place that I never saw myself being as my, you know, staunchly biological self in high school. Now I focused pretty much solely on science communication because I think a lot of my journey through college was, I I mean, I don't, maybe this, a lot of scientists will kick me out for this, but I do not like write, reading scientific papers. I do not like writing scientific papers. Uh, <laughs> and I don't
0: know if anybody likes writing them. I mean, maybe they're out there, but I tell my students all the time, if you're, enjoying doing your science writing you're probably not doing it the right way and you're going to sound very boring and that's exactly what we want you to sound like
1: <laughs> exactly exactly and uh and I kind of always got angry that like that was how we were supposed to sound <laughs> Not at you specifically, but just as the as at as the institution as a whole. <laughs> um, and so yeah, so I really got passionate about science communication because I was like, science is fun and interesting, and we should be talking about it in a fun and interesting way. And uh, I also do a lot of outdoor education as well um, on sailboats, primarily, and sort of that was interspersed in between all of my years at school. And when you're in an environment that's that dynamic and fast-changing, and you're also trying to teach middle schoolers things, you really have to get your point across quickly. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and and so I think that that really like, kind of hammered home the importance of science communication. And so now I have my master's degree in glaciers and spent a lot of years studying physics, and I work on sailboats, which are also very physics-based and teach kids cool things about nature and also teach adults cool things about nature through my own podcast.
0: <laughs> nice. Oh, and we'll definitely be talking about that. Don't you worry. Yes. Um. Yeah. There were a couple of things you were saying that, you know, really resonated with me. I'm thinking about how you were saying that you're, you were very biologically oriented and I was very physics oriented coming into, um, going through college and not interested in biology at all. And yet now here I am trying to figure out how to teach physics for, for pre-meds, uh, when I was at UNE trying to think about, you know, what, what are some of the marine biology aspects that I can bring in? So I have married a biologist. So biology is in my life and, uh, and I like it now. I mean, I don't want to sit and memorize this, the components of a cell. I, I will say that I don't, I don't want to memorize the Krebs cycle or whatever we're supposed to call it now. I think that's that's an outdated name too. <laughs> um, uh but but the other piece you mentioned was about science communication being something that's so dry and awful to read and and maybe the professional journals need to maintain that in order to to allow all scientific users to read it the same way and to get the information they need. But by god, when we start talking to the public, that's that's when we need to begin to communicate better, more frequently, and just just better. Make Make it so you can captivate the audience so they don't want to run away and do something else.
1: And it's a difficult thing to do. I will, like every scientist, every science communicator, I give them a pat on the back because it is really hard to flip your brain between that super technical jargon that you would put into a scientific journal and condensing that into something that is clear and concise and doesn't use big words. And that brain flip that needs to happen is really hard.
0: You know, I would say it's what we need in the classroom, too. Uh, You know, if we make it dry textbook stuff, then students are going to be bored and think it's not relevant. So, well, that's what my podcast is all about. It's like, let's make physics alive! Woo! Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Let's let's make it uh, relevant and, and interesting and something that students find joy in doing rather than it just being a chore that they have to get through.
1: And that yeah, I want every person to feel that way about science.
0: So looking back, what do you feel are some of the most valuable learning experiences that you've had throughout your education? And, and why do you think they were so effective or impactful?
1: Hands-on learning is a big thing for me. Um, I'm definitely a kinesthetic learner. And so any time that I had a lab in front of me where I was discovering the answers to the questions that I was asking, is that's such a powerful, powerful tool. Um, And I know a lot of students and past students that have felt exactly the same way. Uh, It's so important to understand that there's a distinction between just asking somebody the answer or asking somebody a question and get and receiving an answer versus Asking yourself a question, having the tools set up in front of you and being able to discover that. That's why I got into research in the first place is because I loved that so much. And I think that just small little bits of that interspersed throughout an educational experience can definitely make or break somebody's passion for science and make it that much more exciting and that much more interesting. So hands-on experiences... Definitely are the way to go with education.
0: You you know, as as you saw in the physics class at UINI, that's what we were all about. You know, trying with this modeling instruction method, getting experiments into your hands first, that you would then try to make some conclusions about that, build some models and then be able to use that to then to then do some other hands on activities. And and I always wish I had I always wish I had done more. You know, I think about since I just recently listened to your episode about uh, about floating boats uh, I always think about it. that was one of the successes I had where we had these containers of water, a big, big container of water at the front of the classroom. Everybody got a big old coffee can and that you need to put enough weights in it until it's going to sink to a certain level. And you got to do all the calculations ahead of time. And then you get the moment of truth where you where you drop that that can into the water. And that was one of those that always went over well. Students always said, oh, I wish we had more of these types of challenge activities. I need to develop more of those. I need to be able to do that more often because I think that's you know getting groups together to do those sorts of things is really where uh, suddenly physics becomes fun and there 's a mission and now there 's competition because you 're trying to do better than your 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 folks around you oh yeah, and the the kiss the egg when you're uh when you've got the egg on the ground and you have to put the masses on the spring and try not to smash the egg, but whoever gets closest gets an extra point on the exam. Oh boy, everybody was fighting for those points.
1: I do remember that one. Uh, I'm pretty sure I failed it, <laughs> 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 but I remember it. <laughs> yeah, those those hands-on labs. I mean, I think that's like what got me interested in physics in the first place, is because I remember coming into the class and I was like, ah, oh, like. I have to take physics because I'm an oceanography double major and, you know, we need the math and we need the physics and stuff like that. And then, like, a couple weeks into the class, I was like, yo, this is awesome. I get three hours a day to just, like, play with fun tools and science equipment. And, oh, by the way, I'm learning stuff out of it. And I get to smash some eggs and float some boats. And, yeah, great class. And I was like, oh, cool. Physics is awesome.
0: So I'm going to task you with designing a new introductory science course. You know, pick your favorite. It can be whatever intro science you want. Uh, and you're going to teach it next year to college students or maybe high school students. And we're going to prevent, we're going to pretend the COVID era is done and you can go back to doing things normally, Sweet. whatever that's going to mean. <laughs> uh, and well, out of fun twist, let's say that one of the school's rules is that you aren't allowed to stand and lecture. So what are some things that you would absolutely want to have happen in your class?
1: I don't really like to lecture anyway, so this is a, this is a great thing oh, <laughs> yeah, this is a great uh, uh exercise for me to think about um but I think having the kids teach the class or the students teach the class is even more important than and and pertinent and and useful than having a teacher teach the class and I know you talked about a little bit started starting your life science and medical physics classes is the students would come in and know just as much if not more than you would about a lot of topics and and i think that that's important to remember as teachers that a lot of the time our students know incredible amounts of information about things that can be related to whatever topics we're talking about or they can learn those information that information just fine on their own they don't need us to lecture them about it and and so i think having the students teach the class is a great way to do it. And, and by that, I also don't mean like the students go up and lecture. I mean like they write songs about a geologic process or they make a podcast or uh, they draw a comic or something like that. And so having the students teach the class about a set topic in a way that they enjoy and is fun for them to look at and do and listen to, I think that's a really important thing to do.
0: Now, what about those students who say, I had to go into X and Y's class and I had to teach myself because they weren't lecturing. What do you say to that?
1: I would say that that is honestly probably the best way that they're going to learn anyway. And so what's the point of me standing up and being boring and lecturing about something when they can hear their friends do it instead and probably throw in some weird inside jokes that go way over my head and hopefully make it more interesting uh, to the rest of the class. And also, I think by opening it up to having that student be allowed to teach this lesson however they want to, hopefully they can find something that they enjoy doing already and then, oh, by the way, just like turn it into something that's related to earth science or or oceanography or something like that. Um, so I'd really like to hook them by saying like, hey, do something that you think is fun. Like turn your homework into an activity that you'd be doing anyway. And then, oh, by the way, just like tack on some extra things that we should be learning into that.
0: One of the, an interesting quote I heard on uh, another podcast that I listened to called Teaching in Higher Ed. Um, there was actually, it was an email that she had sent out and was talking about the difference between basically teaching content and cur- curating it. So rather than standing in front of the class and lecturing, it's the teacher's job can be more about curating this experience. A lot of that information is already out there. So it's not about us standing and delivering, but it's what what are the best ways to to take in that content, and what are the best ways to actually gain experience with it and and learn it? So it's more about this curation rather than just putting PowerPoint notes together and reading those. But what are the experiences you want your students to have? What are the activities they're going to do? And that takes sometimes just as long, if not longer, to prepare. Yep. (laughs) And we instructors have to get used to not knowing everything going into it because we're kind of winging it and letting the students see us in that winging it form and fumbling around a lot and and saying that yeah that's okay that's actually how learning happens.
1: Yeah, and I think and that's the other thing to remember too is like all of this information like you said is out there. We have the internet. It's a beautiful thing. People can find out whatever the heck they want to on the internet. Um and I guess so another part of that too is like ensuring that your students know how to find adequate and truthful information on the internet but that's a whole that's a whole other topic Uh, (laughs) but um like i mean i could go on and google something about a plant that i didn't know faster than i would learn about it if i was sitting in a lecture in a classroom
0: so now's the time of the episode where Dr. Moser learned something new from a former student. Uh, so physics of glaciers. Oh, my gosh. So I, I want to know more about glacier physics. And you introduced me to the 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 FET about glaciers. And I that was a half hour gone. <laughs> yep. um, so many of my listeners are physics teachers. And a big objective of this podcast is to share awesome physics applications. So you studied glacier dynamics for your master's degree, which is just chock full of physics. What are some of the interesting concepts in mathematics that would be a good fit for the intro classroom? And please keep in mind, no Navier-Stokes equations,
1: please. That is fine. I can easily do that. (laughs) Uh, One of my professors in grad school actually uh, brought popcorn in every single time that we talked about Navier-Stokes. And so now every single time that I smell popcorn, I just think about (laughs) Navier-Stokes.
0: Oh, boy, that's that's a dangerous... um... Association. Yes, <laughs> I, I hope it's a pleasant one rather than ruining popcorn for the rest of your life.
1: I mean, it, yeah, it, it worked. It, it got across what he wanted it to get across, and now I'm always thinking about Navier Stokes. So, so a really great and easy and intro level concept to think about when we're thinking about glaciers is friction, uh, which I mean, you know, does wrap into Navier Stokes, but in a much much easier to understand way. Um, and so basically. The way glaciers work is they, if we're talking about like a mountain glacier, um, say in Alaska or the Alps or something like that, uh, it's a whole bunch of ice piled into a part of the mountain. And then it gets, there gets to be so much ice that that ice starts flowing down the mountain. And so friction plays a huge role in this system because say that ice is up against the rock of the mountain, The ice is flowing, but the rock's not. So there's going to be a crazy amount of friction in between those two layers. But say water gets introduced into the system. Suddenly that ice is now flowing. So if there's like a lake at the bottom or like underneath the glacier, if there's water underneath the glacier, there's now like that lubrication between the rock and the ice. And so now the coefficient of friction has changed because that ice is flowing over water instead of rock. And this completely changes how the glacier flows and how the glacier moves and i mean i'm obviously getting really excited about glaciers but one really really cool thing about glaciers is that in a lot of uh natural systems there'll be like rock that kind of gets mixed up with the ice and you can see this rock in satellite images because it's like a darker band next to a white ice band then there's like a darker band and then a white ice band and so you can see how these glaciers are flowing based on what is happening with those dark bands of rock that's mixed in with the ice so you can see how that rock is kind of getting crimped up to the side of the glacier where that friction is in play and the glacier is moving a lot slower and then you can see where that rock is getting brought down farther into the center of the glacier where it's getting it's flowing much faster and and it's moving much faster where there's that friction isn't in play um and so that's like a really cool and easy thing to see just in like a picture of a glacier uh and and it takes friction this concept that like you know maybe other than getting rug burns a lot of people (laughs) haven't spent a ton of time thinking about um and it takes this concept and puts it into like a very real applicable concept or like natural thing that's happening that's that's easy for people to see in the real world.
0: Well, one of the things I, I really like about that connection is it actually relates right back to fluid physics. Um, you know, I just did an episode a few back uh, about Poiseuille's law, and this is all about flow of water through pipes and you see exactly the same thing where the water flows fastest through the center of the pipe and it's it's stuck up against the edges due to friction but you can't see that uh it's one of those it's it's in the it's in the textbook as a picture you can show vectors longer here shorter there but i feel like with a glacier you get some images now you can all of a sudden see this effect and uh you shared with me a little document and video that had uh some putty that was flowing could you talk about how you might use that in the classroom to show this
1: yes uh flubber glaciers are my jam um so basically you can make a viscous fluid so yeah glaciers are a viscous fluid uh they're also really complex though because they can also sometimes break and crack and act as a solid there's just like a lot of really fun physics that go into ice Uh, and but you can make a substance that acts really similar to ice but just in a much faster way which obviously if we're doing a lab experiment we want because we're not going to spend ten thousand years watching a glacier flow (laughs) (laughs) um so you can make flubber which is uh elmer's glue warm water and borax and there's a whole bunch of recipes online that that people can look up. And you mix this all together. And if you have some sort of a like a ramp or like half of a pipe, we get like large diameter PVC pipe a lot, and just like slice it in half. Um, and you can plot this flubber onto the top of this ramp or this tube, which is your valley, and watch as the flubber flows down your valley. Um, and I would say that depending on the the size of the experiment you want to run um you know maybe takes an hour or something like that like still it still moves pretty slowly but that's what you want because you want to still be able to see the dynamics of the glacier and you want it to be realistic um and you can actually put little things in the flubber and watch how those flow down so you could put little markers like on the sides and then you could put markers in the center and watch how the markers on the sides aren't flowing as flat fast as the markers in the center. Um, you could put obstacles in the way. You could put rocks and things like that. Um, you can also... my One of my favorite things to do is to dye the flubber different colors with food coloring and kind of like stack that up and make it zebra print. And so then as it flows down the hill, you can see those layers interacting with the valley and the rest of the glacier just like you would with those rock bands in a real life glacier.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I could see... Certainly, having that as a classroom demonstration, but then if if you give your students projects to do, you know, putting throwing that one out as a as a possibility, it's like here, it's like make a project like that. So here's a chance to get on your soapbox. Physics teachers could bring some of these topics into their classes, but why should they? Why do you think all students should learn some glacier physics or just more generally glacier science?
1: Well. If anybody needs more of a reason to think glaciers are cool and awesome, uh, they directly tie into climate change, which is obviously a very big topic that a lot of us are thinking about and worrying about and trying to figure out what the heck the future is going to look like. And glaciers are a really important part of this system. Um, They change the temperature of our Earth albedo, so if, if all the ice goes away and that white surface isn't reflecting sunlight anymore, all of that radiation gets absorbed by our planet and we actually warm up faster. Um, we need to think about drinking water resources. As glaciers melt, our drinking water supply is going to change. Like It might get bigger for a hot second while the glacier is melting, but then, oops, the glacier's gone, so we don't have any more fresh water. Um Sea level rise, all of these things are directly tied into what glaciers are doing. Um, And I feel like glaciers are also that really good physical phenomenon that is applicable in this broader global context of like, wow, we really need to understand what glaciers are doing if we're going to figure out what our future is going to look like. Um, But they're also that really cool natural phenomenon that takes all of these pretty complex physics concepts and plops them into a natural scenario that we can observe and see and and watch and also look at beautiful pictures of uh and and it it takes those physics concepts into the natural into the natural world and which is i mean that's what got me hooked into physics in the first place also um and so i think like obviously everybody should be learning and studying about glaciers because it's so important to what our future is going to look like. But it's also just a really great model to understand what those physical dynamics of our world are.
0: Kind of makes me want to go back and get another master's or PhD in glacier science now. Uh.
1: I mean, I recommend it. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, studying glaciers is kind of one of those things too, where it's like you're either, if, if you're, you know, a bit higher up for the intro classes if you're doing a master's or something like that, and you get the chance to do field work. I mean, it means you're in the mountains somewhere, or Greenland, or Antarctica. Like, there's just like rad places have glaciers, and glaciers exist in rad places. So it's like pretty fun to also get to do field work surrounding these amazing concepts.
0: So where can our listeners go to learn more about some of these ideas? What are some of your favorite resources on glacier physics?
1: The um, lab that I worked in in grad school, the geodynamics lab, actually has a website where you can find lots of fun computer models and tutorials. And that's wiki.geodynamics.umaine.edu. And um, I don't know if that's been updated throughout COVID, but at least when I was in grad school, a lot of the grad students that were doing really cool work in the lab making models of the way glaciers are moving or the way rocks are faulting, all that stuff is on that website, which is really cool. Um, the British Antarctic Survey has a really good website for all things ice and poles. They have a lot of great um, science communication and education tools, as well as just displaying their research in great ways. Um also, you can just Google Flubber glaciers, and there's a lot of really fun activities that pop up. Um, kind of like, you know, spending 30 minutes on a on the glacier fit. Uh, <laughs> I can easily spend probably 30 days playing with Flubber glaciers just because there's so many cool things that you can do, uh, and and fun things that happen whether you're expecting it or not out of these glacier models. Um, and then, of course, I do have a podcast, and like you said, the first couple episodes are about glaciers, uh, so you can check out Go Forth and Science podcast, and uh, it's super cool. Part one and two are the two episodes that I have about glaciers and glacier dynamics.
0: Well, fantastic. It's time to start talking about this podcast then. So Go Forth and Science podcast, which you started recently in March 2020, with titles such as We Can't Kelp Ourselves, Let's Get Down to Pacifics, and How Many Rights Are Left, it's about right whales. Uh, The lighthearted naming of your episodes uh, fits your fun-loving and educational approach to topics uh, related to the sea and beyond. So what inspired you to start a podcast, and who do you hope it reaches?
1: So the podcast kind of snuck up on me, actually. (laughs) I started Go Forth in Science originally as... um, honestly like an online portfolio to showcase my comics and my artwork that I was doing around science communication and then kind of around the beginning of 2020 I just within like a month got a crazy amount of encouragement from people to like go do a podcast kate you should do a podcast wow kate you should do a podcast and i was like okay i guess i'm doing a podcast uh and then all of a sudden i was editing the first episode and i was like yep i'm doing a podcast (laughs) uh and now 20 episodes later i'm still doing it and i'm still loving it and uh there's no signs of stopping in the future at least at the current moment and i can't imagine what my 2020 would have looked like without this podcast because it i mean also COVID hit, and I was like, wow, this is a great time to be doing an online education tool. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, jumping on that that bandwagon, for sure, uh, was a great way to keep my mind going through 2020, and also just a really great reason to talk to friends on Zoom.
0: <laughs> Could you envision your episodes being used in a classroom setting somehow?
1: Yeah. Um, so a couple of my episodes actually have already. Uh, as far as I know, they're pretty much used as kind of like listening homework um, additions to to class materials for people to listen to. Um, but that's always really exciting whenever I get a little message from a teacher that's like, oh, hey, I use your podcast. And it's like, oh, great. Because um, that's like one of the really important things to remember about science communication and science education is like science without big words doesn't mean that it isn't any less complex or less real and so it just means that it's told in a way that more people can understand and so using things like i mean and i would like to hope that my podcast is effective science communication if i have gotten that i can check that box off of 2020 uh and and so i think that it's a really good tool to be able to use in classrooms in educational settings uh, but also just listening for fun and learning more about the world around us
0: just to use the the episode I listened to recently the whatever floats your boat uh, which is all about buoyancy Um, I could absolutely see you know having that as a homework assignment where they listen to but one of the things that I I noticed you slipped in there was a, a little challenge for the listeners to uh, maybe kind of build some sort of tinfoil boat. Everybody has the same amount of surface area of material to work with and whoever can hold the most weight uh, or how to make a neutrally buoyant object. Uh, and I thought it's like those would be fun to try in the classroom as uh, again, another one of those challenge type of activities or let's get everybody sort of competing against each other in a fun way sorts of things. So I, I, really, I really liked that, that aspect that you could bring in that now you listen to something first, but now there's maybe some little activities we can do with it too
1: that's kind of the ultimate goal of this podcast is i think just to get people more engaged with the world around them uh whether it's in a classroom building a tinfoil boat which by the way i can remember doing that in middle school it's still it's maybe like the only thing that i really remember about middle school is doing (laughs) that tinfoil boat experiment uh and but it's also like I want people to go outside if they're on a hike or even just driving to work and they see a cool physical phenomenon or a cool bird. I want people to pay attention to that and notice it and think about how exciting the world around us is. Because that's definitely how I get through every day is just by, like, looking at all the really cool things around me and nerding out about them and... And so I wanted to be able to share that with other people and encourage other people to start thinking in that way as well. Because I think that's also really important. Like that is how we get people to care about science and about the environment and even about each other is by opening everybody up to making more of those observations and and thinking about things more.
0: My wife often talks about that. Um also loving environmental science and she's worked in the tour guiding industry for a while um doing uh doing bird tours around the world and one of the things she always says is you got to get people to care about the world before they're going to try to save it try to protect it so it's like you it's like the first step is is the education part in, in an education in a way that makes them love the world around them (laughs)
1: <laughs> Anybody who's gone on a hike with me knows just how excited I get about pretty much anything that crosses my path. Uh I remember climbing a mountain once with some friends in Maine and I I don't even remember hiking up the mountain because I was just talking about rocks the whole time. <laughs> Did you actually
0: get up the mountain because uh, that happens sometimes with with Lena we'll be we can't even get hardly past the trailhead because like oh there's a mushroom oh did you hear
1: that bird there let's look at this in the binoculars like we we have to go up there (laughs) if i can convince at least one person to be that excited about nature on a hike even if it means they don't get to the top of the mountain then i would check my podcast off as a success
0: (laughs) could you give a sneak peek at some episodes that you might have coming down the road
1: yes i am going in i think two-ish weeks or like a week and a half I'll be releasing an episode about sea otters which I'm pretty excited about. Um, I also have some topics about past climates on the docket and uh, March is sort of what I'm calling my year anniversary and of Go Forth in Science and so I'm actually really excited because for March's episode I'm going to take a lot of the fun and crazy stories that I've had to cut from people's interviews for for time constraints. And I'm going to put them all together in a melting pot of just, like, weird natural phenomenon that are (laughs) happening. And I am so excited about that because there's some really awesome stories that I, uh, you know, have usually occurred through tangents of conversation that happen in the interviews. And so I'm like, oh, dang, I have to cut this out because, like, I'm trying to keep my episodes around 20 minutes. Uh, But then... There's there's so much good content out there that I've been talking with my interviews about, and I'm just so excited to put that all into an episode. It's going to be wild.
0: <laughs> so where can everyone find you and your podcasts and your artwork and fun stuff like that?
1: I can be found at GoForthAndScience.com. And uh, all of my links to social media and everything like that are on there as well, but you can also find me at GoForthAndScience on Instagram, GoForth underscore science on Twitter, because my name was really long, or on Facebook at GoFourthInSciencePodcast. And I'm also on Webtoon and Patreon and and all of those things as well. But goforthandscience.com is the place to go where you can find all of that and many other things if you're curious as well. You can uh, see about past guests that I've had on the podcasts or um, fun articles that I've been involved in and just a whole lot of rad science communication.
0: Nice. Yeah. And I'll make sure I get all of those links up on the episode's show notes. So it'll be that much easier for everybody to find. Perfect. Awesome. Kate, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the, the podcast today with me and and sharing your experiences as a student and on the education side of things and about your podcast and glacier physics. This has been uh, such a fun conversation.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me. Uh, it has been really great to think about things that I haven't really at least on the glacier physics side, I haven't really spent a lot of 2020 thinking about it because I've been focusing on boats instead. And so it was really exciting to get to go back and think about that and think about classroom settings. So yeah, so thank you for having me on and, and inspiring me to think about all of these things again.
0: I love that conversation. I felt uplifted for the rest of the day. One of the great joys as an educator is keeping in touch with students over the years, seeing what they are up to, feeling like a proud parent, but also welcoming them as a colleague. We're working together now on a common mission. Seeing Kate start her podcast was inspiring. And as the podcast fever washed over me, I reached out to learn from her. How neat is that? Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you want to check out the resources mentioned in this episode and find links to Kate's social media pages and the Go Forth in Science podcast, head on over to physicsalive.com goforth. While you're there, you should subscribe to the Physics Alive newsletter so that you can receive updates, if I ever send one out again. Find me at Physics Alive on Twitter and Instagram, or go to facebook.com slash physicsalive page. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a five-star rating. The internet seems to run on algorithms, and the few seconds it takes you to tap five stars will help this podcast show up in the search bar when listeners look for physics or education shows. I think that would be super cool thanks again for listening in and I hope you've been inspired to try something new. Your homework assignment? Listen to an episode of Go Forth in Science. But please come back and join me again for the next episode of Physics Alive where we'll discover how learning vectors can be fun. Until then, go forth and be well.